So I've heard um, a really interesting concept where instead of giving, let's say, stimulus or any sort of other uh, payments later on in someone's life, if we were to provide, let's say, like an ETF or something super low cost, an index fund to every child at birth in the US, let's say it was a thousand bucks, it's a modest amount of money, mm. but over 18 years, it grew at the same yearly rate as the general stock market, about 10%. By the time they turn 18, that would be over $5,000. And if you were to keep that and add no money, just let it grow untouched, by the age of like 32, you have, I think, over 20 grand. And that's mm -hmm. starting $1,000. That's super early. Yeah, that is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, the compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. Like there's, there's just this notion that if you start early, even if you pick the wrong investment and you time it wrong, you get in right before a crash, like you're still gonna be so much better off over the entire spectrum of your life. What's up, friends? Welcome back to the show. Hey, I got a thought for us today from Benjamin Graham's book, The Intelligent Investor. Graham writes, Thousands of people have tried, and the evidence is clear. The more you trade, the less you keep. That'll be interesting for our conversation today with Justin Cohen. But first, I wanted to tell you this. We want this platform to be about the listener. Diving into human performance so that we can help you live at your best. And one of the only ways we can do that is if you hop in the comments below, leave your questions, your ideas, and even your guest recommendations. And we want to address as many of those as possible. And uh, if that's not incentive enough, we're going to give away a free Apple Watch. That's right. All you have to do is subscribe, put your name in the drawing. And the winner will be announced during our fifth episode. Super exciting. Uh, Want to give back and give a token of appreciation to our early supporters, our early subscribers. Super cool. So what the heck is going on in the market? Seems like everybody picked up the hobby of day trading during the pandemic. And honestly, the Robinhood fiasco, GameStop, the fluctuations, the printing of money by the U.S. Treasury, all of these things have created a really rowdy and crazy climate. So I thought, heck, I'm going to bring in one of the smarter guys I know on this. Dear friend of mine, Justin Cohen, uh, he's a member of the investment team at the Boston Children's Hospital, a graduate of the University of Notre Dame, husband, and honestly, probably one of the smartest guys I know. Hope you guys love this conversation. Let's get it rolling. Ladies and gentlemen, Justin Cohen, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate that. Dude, thanks for uh, thanks for hopping on today, man. You're my financial guru. You're my go-to guy. Let's go ahead and get the disclaimer out, out, of, uh, out of the way, right? I wrote this down. Okay, go for it. Number one, all opinions that we express on this podcast are solely our opinions. We may maintain positions in the securities that we mentioned and discuss. And lastly, this conversation is for informational purposes only, should not be construed as investment advice. Why don't, for our listeners who might not know who you are, why don't you give a little bit of background about your education, your job history, kind of why you got into finance, why you're passionate about it? Yeah, happy to. 
Yeah, I was, I was stoked to get the invite. It's my first speaking engagement, so it's, uh, it's pretty exciting. But I, uh, born and raised in SoCal, actually pretty close to where TT is now, Pasadena area. Uh, I was at Notre Dame for four years, 2014 to 18. Um, if Drew hadn't done an extra year, we would have graduated at the same time. And I uh, studied finance and Spanish there. Hopefully I studied finance given the nature of this conversation. And I uh, was in the marching band. I would say my kind of financial career started in high school, um, started investing at the end of my senior year of high school. And then when I graduated, spent two years at Ernst & Young in their Boston office, working through valuing businesses, understanding how these things work, how do you ascribe a value to any sort of asset or security. And then for the past six months or so, I've been working at Boston Children's Hospital in their investment team. And that's a role that's more focused on the investing specific piece of the finance world. But as most of you probably know, there's so many different facets there. So that's where I sit now. All right, Justin, Justin's very humble. Dude was like a 4-0 in finance at, at Indy. Very, very smart guy. I think he got a perfect score on the ACT. SET was darn near perfect as well. The guy's brilliant nonetheless. And I think it's very, very important to talk about money, Justin, because a lot of people have different relationships with money. Some of us grew up without money. Some of us grew up with money. And whether you have money or don't have money, the relationship and the way in which you see money is very, very important. I read an article actually 10 years ago, Forbes posted this, and it was a Wall Street investor who referenced the Bible and was like, the Bible mentions money 800 times and references money and possessions 2,000 times in total. And so I think our relationship and the way in which we handle it is important to understanding how, the, how to be the best human being that we can be. And so I don't know, how would, what would you describe as, as a healthy relationship with money? Maybe even culturally, what do you think our, our relationship is with money right now and, and where should it and can it go from here? Hmm. Yeah, wow, that's a- It's a heavy that's question. That's a heavy question. We I, like I to ask that. deep questions. That's the only kind of questions that are worth asking. Um, yeah, I would say that that question of what is a healthy relationship with money and what does it look like to be, to, to use whatever resources you're given well has been something that for the past two and a half years since I've graduated, I've been ruminating on, I've been journaling on, thinking through, because at the end of the day, you know, we're spending almost all of our waking hours in our vocations of some sort, whether that's in a role in a finance firm and an investing firm, whether it's as an athlete and the fruits of our labor for our vocations is money for the most part, right? There's obviously other aspects there. And so it's something that I think a lot of folks shy away from because it is complicated. It's messy. It is confusing and scary. I mean, well, as we'll talk about, I'm assuming on this podcast, the same folks that were riding the wave up have also in some ways ridden the wave down and, you know, some of those amounts were probably life-changing on both directions. And so the, the simple way that I've tried to frame my relationship with money, and I would say this is a newer development, has been how can I be a faithful steward of what I'm given? And it's simple, I think, whether that's stewardship in my family, my wife and I, whether it's stewarding the assets that are entrusted to our team um, in my role, or whether it's just helping out folks that need 
not even advice, but just a framework for money. Um, that's been a big part of, of my journey, I would say in the finance world so far. I think, I think when you talk about relationship with money, it's so subjective, right? It's individual to individual. A lot of people have different experiences. I'm very privileged in a sense that my dad grew up without money. His family did not have money. For him to get his four-year degree, it took him eight years. He worked three jobs. He was a dining hall room manager. He had a co-op that he would do in engineering and he would take, you know, 15, you know, credit part-time student as well. That's why it took him eight years. He married my mom, you know, halfway along the road, actually had me while he was still in school. I think he had two children while he was, while he was still in school. And, and why I say that and why I think I'm, I'm privileged in that respect is because my dad has taught me a mindset of what it looks like when you don't have money. And now 30, you know, 40 years later, he's worked his way just grinding and now he's the president at a wholesale pipe distribution company. But I think why, why I bring that up is it's so based on our experience. Some folks were born into nothing. And a lot of people feel frustrated and disadvantaged by a system that rewards people who have rather than people who don't have. And it seems like that gap just continues to grow. And I think that frustrates a lot of people at least in conversations that I have, do you think there's any universal takeaways from, you know, regardless if you have money or you don't have money, that there are universal aspects to our mentality and how we should, should view money? Because some people are, are privileged where, you know, they, can, they could lose $100,000 and risk it on an investment. Whereas some people during this pandemic have lost their jobs and they're living paycheck to paycheck and they're literally waiting on a government stimulus package or some type of relief to figure out how to buy food and, and put it on the table. I don't think I'm talking about like those things. Are there any universal ways in which our mindset and our focus and our heart should be centered around money? Mm. You started to talk a, bit, a little bit about, I think with stewardship and the yeah. heart of stewardship, because whether you have little or you have a lot stewardship kind of, it doesn't really matter how much you have or you, you don't. It's how you handle the cards that you were dealt, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so to, to kind of unpack that, two of the biggest, I'm not going to say misconceptions, but the two of the ways that I think about money are income and, and wealth. And so those things are different because there are a lot of folks in the world that have tremendously high incomes that are bringing in each year a ton of money. But at the end of the day, wealth is something that is built over 20, 30, 40 years, as you were describing with your dad's situation. And I think to, to think that we can flip the script on inequality by changing income, which is a yearly thing, rather than looking at wealth, which is intergenerational, it's years and years, it, it, I think it oversimplifies what is a very, it's a very larger, very much a greater issue than that. Complex, very complex. Yeah, it's, it's complex, it's nuanced. I mean, one piece of, I guess I would say universal wisdom that I've taken both from, you know, you mentioned as we, as we read scripture, but also just in secular worlds is starting early. So I've heard um, a really interesting concept where instead of giving, let's say stimulus or any sort of other uh, payments 
later on in someone's life. If we were to provide, let's say like an ETF or something super low cost an index fund to every child at birth in the U S let's say it was a thousand bucks. It's a modest amount of money, mm. but over 18 years, it grew at the same yearly rate as the general stock market, about 10%. By the time they turn 18, that would be over $5,000. And if you were to keep that and add no money, just let it grow untouched by the age of like 32, you have, I think over 20 grand. And that's mm -hmm. starting a thousand dollars. That's super early. Yeah, that is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, the compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. Like there's, there's just this notion that if you start early, even if you pick the wrong investment and you time it wrong, you get in right before a crash, like you're still going to be so much better off over the entire spectrum of your life. I, I heard going throughout this, this past presidential cycle, Andrew Yang actually proposed, I think, a universal basic income policy. Mm -hmm. And I don't care whether you, you agree with Andrew Yang or not. It's a, it's a fascinating concept. If you actually look into it, he proposed that regardless of what your net worth is, what your upbringing is, everyone at starting at 18 years of age receives, call it $1,000 or $1,200 it might have been annually. But I honestly, I think this is a more interesting idea, right? If you're born a U.S. citizen, if you're born, you know, here in America, you get a thousand dollars in an ETF, call it whatever, a fund, but it, it is set up. And instead of having to give somebody $1,200 a year, you give them $1,200 at birth and you allow compound interest to grow to where you talked about at 30, it's sitting at, at 20K. I think a lot of issues, mid 20 year olds, even early 30 year olds, is they're still trying to pay off their student debt. Student debt is, is huge. I mean, my family, like my brother's going through that right now. They're trying to pay off student debt. Like mm -hmm. even getting our education. Yeah, it's a great investment, but it also puts you in the hole a little bit. If you don't, if you don't get a scholarship, if you, you know, your parents aren't able to pay for it, it puts you in the hole a little bit. That's a fascinating idea. It's, it's certainly not my own. I, I, I'm sure I co-opted it from a podcast. I, I, this year I've been listening to so many different folks talk about how do we basically steward assets well, both as people in the U.S., but also just as, as um, like, you know, folks within society that have been given that opportunity. So I, I think where it differs, right? Like at the age of 18, if you're given 1200 bucks a year, like that's, that's a lot of money. That's rent or food or all these things. But it addresses maybe that first question of income where for that year, your, your needs are provided for, you're kind of getting out of the hole. But how do we think beyond like the one year time horizon to say, how do we build wealth rather than, you know, how do we almost like provide for the, the daily needs when those things should be met anyways? It's not like we should neglect those. Those just shouldn't be what's driving the larger investing conversation, I think. Mm. That's powerful. I think, I think too, like financial literacy could be a huge thing. Like, we talked on the phone and I'm asking you what the heck's going on with, with Robin hood, right? What, what is, what even is a, a short squeeze? And I had a four year education from Notre Dame yet. I was, the ideas are still a little bit over my head. I think probably a big reason a lot of people are frustrated with the current financial system is it seems like you have to maybe study it in school, even to have, you know, competency or financial literacy. We'll talk a little bit about, you know, short, short squeezes, 
what exactly took place just because I think it's an interesting case study. But what do you think needs to change so that just the average American can have financial literacy? Is it something that just needs to be swept into our, our high school education more, focused more? Because it seems like, you know, we go to school, we study these theoretical ideas and whatever subject matter we're interested in, and we come out and there might be little, talked about wisdom, there might be little practical life application wisdom on how to handle finances, on how to build generational wealth for your kids and your grandchildren. What Do you have any ideas on how the average American could maybe become more financially literate? I don't yeah, that's, man, if you had to say what's an issue like on your heart constantly, it's that idea of financial literacy. As you know, I have an identical twin brother um, who isn't able to join us today, but he and I have talked for a lot, a lot of years about how do we how do we basically disperse this sort of information that we're talking about that I, I share with other friends and make it accessible, make it free and like, and have that starting early question be addressed. Perfect example of this is my wife just graduated from law school last year. She's an absolute stud, like one of the smartest people I know. And when we talk about retirement accounts, student loans, credit card investing, her, her knowledge is the lowest you can get. And she has had everything like perfect in her educational career and had all the opportunities. It's just, that's not an area that I know Brooke she's Brooke's focused brilliant. on. She's brilliant. Yeah. I'm a lawyer, Harvard law, like brilliant. And this is really interesting. You say this. And as, and as we talk about, cause she has, she has student debt as well. Like as we talk about that and the decision to take that on interest rates, consolidating loans, all those things, which I feel like most people probably either don't care about or shy away from because it is scary and complicated. Um, she, she doesn't have the background to where she can address those things. And so even personally, you know, I, I have a finance background, like I love this stuff, but I have been so privileged to have been educated in a way that I have where 99 plus percent of folks, I don't think have had that. And in terms of solutions, now I, I, I'm with you. Like, I think it's a, it's a conversation that we need to be having. I think apps like Robinhood, which we'll talk about, are interesting because acorns. Have you heard of acorns? Love acorns. Yeah. Tell us about the premise of that. Well, I mean, you probably know better than me, but the idea that acorns can grow into big trees, right? And I think the yeah. idea is you have a credit card, you have uh you have some type of uh card, call it credit, debit, whatever, and you make a purchase. Let's say you buy coffee at Starbucks for I don't know what they're going for now. Uh, a latte, venti latte. Three bucks, four bucks. 472. Well, the additional 28 cents would go directly to your Acorns account and be invested kind of instantaneously or simultaneously and thus grow. And so it's this idea of, you know, I think it rounds up to every dollar. You can set it on however you want and you can set limits on it. So if you only want to invest 10, 100 bucks a month, you can do that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really cool concept because people don't have to think about it. All they have to do is download this app, you know, link up their account and this stuff is happening instantaneously. It's a really, really cool concept. And I think you're seeing, you know, more of an interest as we, this discussion becomes more prominent in the national eye, this idea of, you know, income equality, financial literacy. You're seeing these apps like Robinhood and like Acorns now who are trying to make it more accessible to the retail investor. And it seems like there's a rise in retail investors. And so I just think, I think Acorns is a, 
is a solid idea. Acorn should sponsor this episode. I just Acorn, give them a plug. Go out to them. Yeah, I wonder if they'll have six hundred thousand downloads like Robin did. Robin Hood did last Friday. It's it, but the the difference between those two platforms, and again, this is we don't have to get into specifics, but what Acorns is encouraging is it's trying to get you invested as low barrier as possible. So you don't even need to think about it and as early as possible. So like you don't have to each month go into your fidelity or your, you know, Robinhood account and say, I'm going to put a thousand bucks there. Cause that's a daunting task and that's a lot of money and it requires a lot of steps in the process. The barriers to entry. Yeah, totally. So re- removing barriers and uh, you could use the word democratizing. You could use the word like accessibilizing it's probably not even a word but is i think what a lot of these new or probably five to ten year old fintech startups have been doing and with reasonably high levels of success think about if we went back to that concept you proposed where everybody at birth gets an account let's say it's an acorns account they get a thousand bucks in their acorns account and then i don't know when the average american gets a, a debit card or starts spending money i feel like maybe 10 or 15 years ago, this wouldn't have been as prominent, right? Because we used cash. And now it seems like everything is being moved. The card, it's even going further and into Bitcoin and this decentralized platform and totally technological. But it seems like we're using cards now. So I'd, I'd be interested, you know, if a 13, 14, 15, I don't know what the average age of an American that gets a debit card is, but they have that thousand bucks, it's growing. And then they have an Acorns account where, you know, they're, they're buying their coffee or they're buying a slushy like I used to do after high school, you know, at the local gas station and all these things are compounding and helping them invest the principle of investing. Very, very important. It's even biblical. You talk about the, the parable of talents and, you know, one man given one, five and 10. And it's such a universal story because it doesn't matter what you were given. The concept is what did you do with it? And investing is, is very, very important. And it's something not a lot of people are doing because they believe they can't because they're incurring debt and they're living in a situation where it's paycheck to paycheck. But if people, I think more people understood, you alluded to it, the importance of time, it wouldn't matter if you were putting a dollar, $5, $10, figuring out a way to live on just a little bit less so that you could put that starting even in high school or middle school or whatever. And then the compound interest effect kind of takes over, you know? Yeah. I mean, what's, what's crazy about it is the, in the example I described to you where you have a thousand dollars at birth and at age 18, maybe it's, I think it's $5,000. I ran the math before, but that's a, that's a sizable increase, but maybe not a life changing amount of money for everyone. But then 12 years later, that goes from five to 20. If you think another 10 on top of that, that 20 is going to, a, a, you know, an enormous sum. Yeah. And that, that math works the same way, whether you put in 10 bucks that you cut out from a Chipotle burrito or mm-hmm. it, uh, you know, a thousand bucks from your workplace savings account. So it's, it's sort of like the, the math behind it is incredible, but the barrier to entry should be low enough where it doesn't matter if you're putting in, you know, a lot or a little. I want to talk about corruption, right? Corruption seems like a, a buzzword of today, but I think it's important because I'll talk to people and they'll say, I don't really trust putting like what even is an equity or a stock? Like they feel more secure with their money in their bank account. A lot of people feel more secure with cold, hard cash and, and rightfully so. It's like, I have it. Nobody can touch it. Nobody can manipulate it. Nobody can take it. And so I think a big barrier in a lot of people's minds is this idea of 
they do, maybe don't understand what, what an equity is or uh, what it's like you, when you can buy a stock and that can increase in value. A lot of people are just kind of sketched out. I don't really want to put my money in a, a Robin Hood or a Fidelity account. I don't really, I don't really know if I trust our financial system. And I think it's an important conversation to have because this past week, past two weeks, we've seen, you know, this rise of retail investors kind of coming against quote unquote, the hedge funds, the billionaires kind of in a almost revolt revolution, like feel what I guess to, to somebody who, who might not know kind of what happened, like, what exactly was like taking place in the black box? We see GameStop, we see all these stocks just shoot through the roof. And it's because I guess all these hedge funds were holding like short positions. So talk a little bit about shorts, the short squeeze. What, what exactly was taking place? Educate us a little bit on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To kind of close the loop on the earlier point too, I think what's, what's great is that this notion of like, what is an equity? That question in a lot of ways, I think has, fueled the retail trading because of folks not understanding what that actually is. And so owning an equity of a business is simply being a partial owner of the overall company. As we've talked about retail trading and GameStop at AMC, I I haven't heard a lot of folks saying I'm getting in these companies because I want to be a partial owner of GameStop or AMC. It's, I see enormous profits to be made over the next two weeks. And I think understanding the difference between like investing, which is what you were describing. And I don't know, let's call it speculating that that term carries a lot of negative connotations sometimes, but mm-hmm. those two things are, are very different. And I think what we've been seeing in the last few weeks leans more on the side of speculating, which again, not wrong or right. It's just, I haven't heard a lot of folks taking a longer term view on the business prospects of GameStop. So from what I understand, and there's been so many good pieces written on this, I think Matt Levine is someone that we've talked about who has written extensively on it. But back in 2019 or so, there started to be some action around, hey, GameStop is a business that has been tanked in its stock price. It's overlooked. No one's going to malls. You know, the business is moving digital. The brick and mortar video game store. Yeah. 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 It's true for for our listeners who don't know. And then at the beginning of... This year, there were some, some developments in the company. There was a, a new board member or a set of board members that spun out of uh, Chewy, which was a famous online pet retail company, mm-hmm. e-commerce specifically. So he joined the board, I think took an ownership stake there. And there's been a community called Wall Street Bets, which is run through Reddit. And f- I have not done extensive research on this, but they're- The Wall Street Bets, it's just like a forum on Reddit, right? Yeah. Like people are just kind of- you know, writing stuff. It's like a chat room, almost like a Twitter feed of sorts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a way for folks to come together and share investing ideas or encouragement or advice or any sort of thing related to finance and investing. And uh, at the beginning of this year, this there, they gained some sort of momentum. A lot of folks were using the platform and, and there was some strong interest in GameStop. I think it started as a fundamental value position, which was saying, Hey, we think the value of GameStop is underrated. So we should buy more shares because if the market recognizes that our ownership will become more valuable over time, which that's more of an investing thesis. Yep. The interesting part is that a lot of, um, we'll call them institutional investors. So the difference between a retail investor, which would be like, you know, you or I on this podcast, 
versus an institutional investor, which would be some of the bigger guys, call them hedge funds, call them big like investing firms. A lot of those firms, they did not feel the same way about GameStop and they were short the company. What that means is that they were borrowing shares of the company and in exchange for borrowing a share, they would have to repay that share later, but if the price went down, they would make a profit on the company's share price decreasing. So it'd basically be like you going to someone that held the share, you say, hey, I need that share for $10. I will give it back to you at a later date. And let's say the share price dropped to five bucks. At that point, you could go and buy it in the stock market for $5. You have borrowed it 10 and your profit then becomes the $5 difference. So it's, it's way more complicated than that, but that's kind of the base level of it there. So I'll, I'll stop there actually, and pause. They never actually own the stock. See, my problem with shorting, and I, I was, I don't know who, who might have said this. Somebody else was complaining about it. You never it was, actually- uh, Elon Musk. Yeah, you never actually own it. Like, why is that even legal? I know it's just another vehicle that was created by, you know, the financial, you know, Commonwealth of America as a way to, it's essentially like you're gambling, you're placing a bet on, you know, what you think the value of the company is and where it might go, but you never actually own it. You're just borrowing it. So why can you, why can you take, it's like you're taking money from something you never actually own. Granted, you do have the stipulation that you have to pay it back at a later date. But mm -hmm. the whole concept, like the legality of it, I think a lot of people are like, why the heck is that even a thing? Like, mm -hmm. Yeah, know. as people have, as short selling has become more in the public light, and, and I, think, I think it was Musk that tweeted out, basically like you can't short sell a house, a car, any other asset. Like why, why can you short sell a security basically? Now, I'm not going to comment on the merits of short selling. I think part of the argument for why it's allowed is this idea of like uh, price discovery. And so in essence, if, if there was not a way to short sell a business, it's reasonable to assume that over time, the value of that business and its stock price could increase to a point that didn't make a lot of sense. And maybe that's going to hurt the market. Maybe that's going to hurt shareholders. Like, I think there could be an argument where it's a protection against the value of the price getting to irrational or unjustifiable levels. So that's, that's the like pure finance argument towards it. But what's so uh, scary and interesting about short selling, and we saw this in the past few weeks, is that you have unlimited losses potentially if you are short a stock. So if you go and buy a normal share of any business, you are, you're, the worst you could do is to lose the investment you've put in. So zero, you know, a hundred percent loss. That's pretty bad. In the scenario we're referring to, if you're borrowing shares from someone else, you could lose a hundred percent, 200%, 500%. And th that would compound over time where you can lose your shirt. And that's why it's kind of controversial, both because it, is really dangerous to do, but it also seems a bit questionable as to why it's even allowed in the first place. Robin Hood, the good guy, the guy taking from the rich and giving to the poor, 
they suddenly shut down trading of certain securities such as GameStop, such as AMC. And they threw in, I think, like Apple and some other ones to make it, I think, look a little bit better. But it comes out like there's this huge narrative that just paints them as the villain. You know, they're, they're not talking about liquidity. He comes out and says something on day one that sketches people out even a little bit more. And then I think on the third day comes out and says, like, guys, this is totally like a liquidity clearinghouse issue. Uh, there's something within like the actual when a, when a security is sold or bought and when it's actually et- executed, it's like a T plus two. I don't, I'm mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that. But what it's, it's interesting to me because there's day traders, right? There's people who will buy a security. Let's call it one of these institutional funds. They'll buy a security and sometimes a quantity of, you know, they'll buy a million dollars of something or $10 million of something. And then they might take a really short position and get out later that day. But the, the buying of that never actually was executed per se because of the T plus two. What, what, what is that? Why does that exist? Uh, talk about their liquidity, you know, issue a little bit and, and what, what happened. Yeah. So I would say every day new information comes out in terms of what actually happened and what's going on. So it's certainly a live issue. I think when it first happened on Thursday of last week, I believe the, the narrative that a lot of folks were, were sharing and were kind of proliferating was that Robinhood was aligned with the hedge funds. They were aligned with what main street would call like wall street or the bad guys. And that they were essentially doing the shutdown of these securities to protect those folks. That was one narrative that came out. Um, they allowed for selling of these securities. At, the, at least I think in the case of GameStop, they allowed for selling, but you couldn't purchase during that day. So that's pretty bad optics just at its face. Like that does not seem like a fair platform to be able to shut down one side of the trade, leave the other side open. What has since come out, and again, this is still, I don't know if this has been communicated super well by their team, but in the process of being a broker like Robinhood is, they are required to have certain levels of financial capital. So basically just cash to um, essentially allow them to not go bankrupt. That's, that's the kind of extreme situation to protect them from insolvency. And the reason that happens is as you were alluding to, there is a pretty complicated mechanism between when someone like URI places a buy order on Robinhood and when we actually get the shares. So the T plus two notation is that you are required to basically settle a trade or to pay for trade no later than two days after the trade is placed. And so there's kind of a lag period between me clicking the button and the actual trade getting settled. There's another party in this kind of ecosystem called a clearinghouse. And a clearinghouse is essentially a financial intermediary that sits between brokers like Robinhood and you or I as the actual investors here. And they, they confirm that, okay, this trade is going to go through as expected. Both parties have essentially satisfied the contractual obligations and they certify it. So they're kind of like a, you call them a regulator in that process. Some of the information that's come out has implied that on Thursday morning of last week, Robinhood 
was required to put up a lot more money as collateral for as a result of the tr tremendous volatility from the stocks that are on their platform. So there's, I think there's a kind of a metric that the clearinghouse uses to assess the riskiness of a broker like Robinhood. And given how much these stocks were swinging, suddenly Robinhood found themselves with a requirement for cash that was likely higher than what they had. That's how they have portrayed it as the reason they've closed that down for that day. So I know there's a lot there, but I can, I can pause and flesh out anything in more detail. Yeah, it just seems like the, the system, the T plus two, the regulations that are set and forth by the SEC and the other organizations that set the regulations, it just seems like, you know, maybe the average everyday American gets slighted because they're not mm -hmm. at the table setting these rules. Uh, they're not paying people to lobby. I know lobbyists get a bad rap. I'm not hating on lobbyists, but uh, sort of am a little bit. Like we, we can't afford like for people to go and, and represent our interests like maybe some of these financial institutions can. So I think there's just a little bit about a little bit of frustration happening there. And I think that's led to the rise, right? Of people talking about how can we eliminate, eradicate corruption from the financial system, right? Money, love of money is the root of all evils. Like this is like, historically we've seen this people who might've been really great people and had a really good heart have, gotten a lot of money or gotten a lot of power in it and it leads to corruption. It can sway our decision-making. It can lead to uh, alter, alter our decisions. So people are talking about a system in which you kind of eliminate a boss, if you will, somebody in charge or somebody, you know, in the place of making rules or decision-making and you decentralize the financial system. DeFi is what they call it. What, what kind of is going on there? What's the, the conversation around moving from a centralized fiat system, as a lot of people say, to kind of this decentralized in which you're hearing a lot of buzz and, and the news coverage is obviously, you know, on these cryptocurrencies. But I think there's a much larger issue of decentralized finance as a whole. How do we eliminate and honestly almost automate these things to where it's kind of a peer-to-peer -peer network and there's no big bad wolf, you know, kind of taken over and hurting the little piggies. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating concept. I feel like we are such in the early innings of decentralized finance that, it, it, you know, there, there's certainly a lot of speculation there, but at its core, the question I've been asking myself is what is the role of centralization and is it actually beneficial for the people that it's intending to protect? Because you think about a government or institution, it has a mission this is a very like theoretical way of looking at it, but is it doing that mission well? So are institutions like the SEC or like other consumer protection bureau, are they functioning as they intended or are they misaligned in their interests? Because I think the reason that we as humans desire or even put up with centralization is because it does offer protection. It offers stability. It offers a lot of good things. Now, when there's corruption or when there's you know, violation of those tenets, that's when you start to say, okay, can we do this a better way? And is decentralization the actual way to do that? I think within, um, let's call them like the financial systems in general, if you were to say, hey, can we cut out like middlemen or can we cut out the, the fat in the process and just transact 
directly. So if I want to buy a share of Robin or a share of GameStop per se, someone wants to sell it, why do we need the four layers that we just discussed in that process? I think that's a super valid question. I also wonder how safe or how developed a system would be where it, it's just you decentralize everything and there's kind of no governing authority because that's part of the huge sell with digital assets, with cryptocurrencies, things like ether and Bitcoin. There is no governing central authority, which maybe is a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing, but I understand why it's an attractive proposition, especially where we find ourselves today in the current financial markets. It's just interesting too. I, I mean, I've recently gotten into to Bitcoin and Ethereum a little bit, finally got, finally got sold on it. This idea of supply, right? We're seeing it this past year where I think this is our second like massive stimulus bill and either, I don't know what's occurring in the black box. I, there's speculations that we're just printing a ton of money or we're incurring a bunch of debt from, from foreign countries, whatever the situation might be. It, it certainly doesn't look good from an economic idealist standpoint. And so I think the idea with some of these cryptocurrencies is you can control the supply chain, right? There's no governing body controlling how much of it there is. Therefore, it's seemingly more stable. I know it's you know a very volatile deal right now and people just see it as kind of a value store or whatever. Mark Cuban said that, but there is potential there. It seems like if people, if the demand, if people say, you know what? Like, yeah, I'll, I'll lend you, I'll give you some sneakers for, you know, I think the, the smaller parts of Bitcoin are like Shatoshis. Like, I'll give you that for 100 Shatoshis. If there becomes this demand where exchange suddenly becomes, uh, I don't know, seen as, seen as commonplace, you know, where it's, it's instead of giving you 100 bucks for sneakers, it's, you know, you give the crypto version of that. It just seems, it's instantaneous. It's peer-to-peer. It, it seems... I think it's a cool idea and I don't know maybe what your speculation is on what that might look like in 10 years. If you think it will continue to grow or you just think it's like a, a buzz. I don't know. Yeah, man, it's like most of these concepts, something that is it's on the front of my mind and something that I feel so ill-equipped to actually like a pine on. But I'd say as I've learned more about, let's say like Bitcoin, which at its core is store value, digital gold, um, you know, it can be used for transactions, but its true purpose, I would say, is as a hedge or as speculating that it will suddenly become in the future, not suddenly over time, a, a source of value that people ascribe value to and say, hey, we're going we're gonna to be willing to transact in this. If you look at something like Ethereum, and there's a whole slew of other uh, like protocols and tokens that are in this realm, Ethereum is attempting to capture the decentralized part by creating smart contracts. So it's, it's essentially, I would say, self-governing in that it's, its goal is to create systems where it's immutable and you cannot change the rules of the system. If you know, people are awarded X resource for doing Y task, like you, you can't change that. And that's blockchain. an attractive thing. It's in the blockchain which is still also to me such a mind-blowing concept. I'm a finance and Spanish major. Like blockchain is like, what is going on here? But it's very interesting. Where I struggle personally, and this could change next week, but where I struggle is 
part of the thesis for an asset like Bitcoin is that it will, the supply is limited. So you, you cap supply and like you're describing, that's very good, right? Because yeah. it's not fluctuating. You can't make those changes, but it almost requires some sort of way to value this currency. You could value it against the USD. You could value it against an asset, all these sorts of things. You value businesses, you use, what are the future cash flows? And it's, it's just, this is such an old school investing way to look at it, but what are, what's the equivalent to the future cash flow for Bitcoin? And maybe it doesn't need that. Maybe it's just good as a inflation hedge like gold, but I have been both intrigued by the demand spikes it's seen, but also I've been struggling about how to actually think about, you know, the valuation of that asset and the price. Cause price is all over the map, like up 25%, down 50%. But there's certainly something there beyond it just being something that like old school programmers are looking at. Yeah, dude, people are calling it digital gold and you're looking at the market cap. I think gold sits atop. It's on the throne, 12.2 trillion or something in, in market cap or whatever. And I think Bitcoin had, you know, at its peak at 40, whatever K it was, it, you know, it was sitting at like one or two T and people were like, you know, even if it can cover ground to five T six T and get, half of what gold is the evaluation obviously shoots through the roof and it, it suddenly becomes an an interesting investment i'm i'm personally a little bit more bullish on ethereum because ethereum right we're talking about decentralized finance is trying to capture the whole scope like you're talking about you talk about when you talk about a financial system right there's so the ecosystem there's so many components there's Obviously, you know, the currency of it, but then there's insurance, there's loaning, mortgages, uh, business loans, whatever it might be. And so there's many different components that make up the financial system. And Ethereum, I think, is trying to capture all that. And so I, I don't understand why it's so grossly undervalued relative to Bitcoin. But, you know, Bitcoin's got the media hype and there's certainly a lot of good things happening with Bitcoin. And a lot of people are very bullish on Bitcoin, but uh it's a, it's a really interesting concept. And we, I think it can honestly be tied back to the financial literacy thing. I'd say, all right, we have a good baseline. Let's move on to this next thing that's more advanced. That is really hard to understand, but that is likely where eventually we will get. I think where I struggle is, you know, as Robinhood has, allowed, and other apps, has allowed access, it's allowed information flow, it's allowed anyone to get involved in buying a stock, it has also allowed for options and leverage and people have lost a ton of money. So in some ways, yeah, I think there's, there's this notion that by allowing everyone access to the financial markets, like in Robinhood, that you are doing everyone a service. But I think without the educational components that underlie, what does this actually mean? You potentially could put people in worse situations than they were in before because you allow for an incredibly risky proposition, which investing is at its core, but you don't provide the kind of pipes to welcome them into that process. And that disconnect to me, I think would be even more significant with something like a cryptocurrency asset where you know you have really intelligent seasoned investors that have no idea how to get in this space, what to do with it. I'm not saying you can't make a grip of money speculating on which cryptocurrency is going to go up in value. I just, I would, I guess I would start 
at the kind of fundamental piece, which is more of the investing in the equity of a business. And then hopefully over time we could move towards the blockchain. Yeah. I think I was, uh, in my uh, infancy of understanding crypto and, and what the heck's happening, I, I checked out, I just typed in on YouTube, like, you know, something like what, what is Bitcoin? What is Ethereum? But I found this guy, uh, 99 Bitcoins, and he does a, a pretty decent job of just explaining what the heck is happening. And uh, I think it'd be a good, good resource, just like you've been. Appreciate that. It was a great resource. I took a look last night, some of the videos, and the way he broke it down was probably the most concise I had seen, which is really good. Yeah. Well, I, I hope the listeners have been encouraged because like I said, I think like we started out at the beginning, like money's a very important issue uh, because I think it has a lot of ties to our heart. It has a lot of ties to the way in which we act. Uh, we talk about stewardship. It's a very important issue to talk about. And it's a, it's a reality of, of being human. You know, how do we, how do we handle our, our money? What's our relationship with money? And I think you've given a lot of uh, really good, insightful information on how we can have a more healthy relationship with money. Because ultimately, I think that's the goal, right? Is to have a really healthy relationship uh, with money where, uh, you know, our value, our identity is not tied up in it, but we're also not just uh, gamblers and, and risking it and, and doing things that aren't good stewardship we're not helping others we're not giving we're not doing these things and so you know it's been an awesome conversation bro thanks for coming on yeah of course and i, I think as we talk about the parable of talents one thing we didn't mention is the the gentleman who didn't invest and who stored away and kind of held tightly to the resource that he was given and didn't steward it well did not end well for him with his master and so i think there is a responsibility that comes with this question of money where it's not like it's not as simple as, oh, are you, you know, investing well? It's, are you, are you stewarding well? And so I think it's, it's an expansive question that extends to all aspects of our lives uh, that is really good to kind of chew on. No doubt. Appreciate you, Justin. Thanks for coming on the podcast, bro. Well, that wraps up today's episode. We hope you found it valuable and worth your time. Hey, if you got questions or comments, please be sure to drop those below. I love reading those and very much value your feedback. And if you want to stay up to date with our latest content, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Lastly, if our content has blessed you in some way and you feel compelled, please consider leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. This will certainly help us grow and continue delivering valuable content to our listeners.